Our speaker this evening is Assistant Professor of History Monica Palayo. She earned her bachelor's degree at Brown University and then went on to complete her master's degree and doctorate at the University of Southern California. She is the director of the public history track in the History Master's Program at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Professor Palayo specializes in 20th century social and cultural histories, immigration, race and ethnicity, and American collective memory. As a public historian, she has worked with the Bracero Oral History Project, the Studio for Southern California History, the Breed Street Shoal, and most recently to an immigrant advocacy organization, Community Initiatives for Visiting Immigrants in Confinement. She's currently working on a book-length study entitled Narrating a Nation of Immigrants, Race, Memory, and Cultural Policy in Cold War America. Tonight, Professor Palayo will speak about how the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island contributed to a narrative that unified the country under a common shared experience. Please join me in welcoming Monica Palayo to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you. Just give me a little second to uh, set up my lecture here. In 1956, the General Service Administration put Ellis Island up for sale. The federal government had used it to house an immigration processing center. The station opened to anxious immigrants in 1890. During World War I, the government changed the site from a processing center to a detention center for enemy aliens. The immigration sta uh, station's purpose changed even further in, when Congress enacted the Immigration Act of 1924. This law severely limited the number of immigrants entering the country and stipulated that prospective immigrants be inspected in American consuls abroad, making Ellis Island mainly a deportation center. During World War II, the government used the island to house alien combatants, and after the war, they kept foreigners suspected of, house, of holding communist views. By 1954, local officials saw the immigration center as a nuisance, and in November, they closed the facility. It took 20 years for Ellis Island to open to the public, and another 14 before it actually became a museum. Throughout this time, Ellis Island had to compete with the American Museum of Immigration at the base of the Statue of Liberty. Had anyone, has anyone ever been to that museum by any chance? Oh, yes, a couple of you. I might come up to you afterwards. <laughs> so um, the American Museum of Immigration centered on telling the history of immigrants in the United States. Tensions arose between proponents of the two monuments. They argued over the meaning of the monument and how white Americans should remember their immigrant past. At stake, they claimed, was the meaning of the immigrant experience and the collective memory of the United States. 
On one side was the American Museum of Immigration, which held steadfast to the melting pot narrative, arguing that specific immigrant contributions propelled the United States economy and society. Their narrative came from an anti-communist ethos, which attempted to show that cultural strengths of American democracy. On the other side were proponents of Ellis Island, who believed in the emphasis that who believed that the emphasis on contributions obscured the everyday lived experiences of immigrants as they walk through the corridors of Ellis Island. Their narrative centered on ethnic revivalism that was prominent in the 60s and 70s, which celebrated American multiculturalism. Yet both monuments were invested in finding a framework that instilled a common immigrant heritage. Therefore, even as they debated on how to display in the immigrant past, both of them worked to solidify the notion that the United States was a nation of immigrants, constructing a narrative that placed European immigrants front and center. In 1952, the Park Service began to examine the merits of reinterpreting the Statue of Liberty as an immigration site. William Baldwin of the American Scenic and Historic Preservation Society had approached the Park Service with the idea of creating a museum that could help with the psychological warfare against Russia. Baldwin believed that Americans needed a unifying narrative in the fight against communism, and he thought that an American Museum of Immigration could garner the kind of trust and impact that, quote, only free and voluntary citizen action can contribute, end quote. The Park Service took interest in the project since Americans believed that the Statue of Liberty had been neglected. One woman wrote several letters asking Presidents Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower to install a device on the Statue of Liberty that could, quote, play the national anthem as our ships glide in the harbor, end quote. Seriously, I read every single one of those letters. When the Preservation Society approached the Park Service, they jumped on the opportunity. Despite installing a special plastic coating to prevent graffiti in 1947, the Park Service needed a visible symbol that demonstrated their work on the grounds. They had long contemplated the notion of remodeling the pedestal. So if you see there, it's very small. If you go today, it's quite huge, right? Um, so they wanted to remodel this pedestal and thought that it could serve as a proper place for a museum project. The museum could demonstrate to the American public that its immig immigrant past made it a nation of liberty. In so doing, the Park Service recast the meaning of the statue from one of Franco-American friendship to become the quote, huddled masses of the old world. The American Museum of Immigration, which from this point forward, I'll just say AMI, received approval from a wide range of politicians and leaders in the 1950s. These men were enthused with the idea of creating a, spot, a space that could unify the American public under a consensus of civic patriotism. 
President Eisenhower, for instance, publicly endorsed the project, announcing, this is a nation of nations. Our forefathers came here from all the countries of the world. United as one people, we have created new freedom and new opportunity for all. There is no story like its history, and the idea of telling it at the foot of the Statue of Liberty is a splendid one. In other words, they believe that this narrative could unify Americans under a positive shared experience. This narrative, they assumed, allowed Americans to make claims about the United States' superior form of democracy and liberty. This reasoning also led Congress to change the name of the statue's island from Bedloe's to Liberty. The joint resolution cited the museum as a major catalyst, noting that it stood as a tribute to the millions of people who, quote, have been coming here since the earliest of times from all over the world in search of liberty, end quote. Those words linked the museum to a specific Cold War narrative. Immigrants, they maintained, established the country in order to continue to fight for a democratic world. They wanted to ensure that a physical place carried the name liberty, linking the word to the United States and by extension to immigrants. In order to demonstrate the project's broad appeal, the AMI's Board of Trustees kickstarted a fundraising campaign. The organization turned to ethnic, business, and labor organizations for financial assistance. In Los Angeles, specifically, the AMI staff met with Mexican-American civic leaders like R.J. Carreón of the Mexican Chamber of Commerce of Los Angeles, Councilman Edward Roybal, and La Opinion publisher Ignacio Lozano. All of these men were outspoken anti-communist, and as a historian has noted, they used anti-communism to increase minority rights. Their activism for Mexican-American rights was also part of a broad, multi-ethnic coalition of activism in Los Angeles. The AMI knew that garnering their support, uh, sorry, garnering their support could give them access to other ethnic communities and their pocketbooks. While at first glance, this strategy appeared to be inclusive of racial minorities, the reality was that when defining the United States as a nation of immigrants, the AMI relied on an immigrant heritage that depended on the melting pot theory. The AMI trustees believed that even though people came to the United States from different cultures, in the end, all assimilated into American society, attaining American citizenship and the full rights that go along with it. Yet these Mexican-American men knew otherwise. Their experience showed them that social constructions of race and ethnicity prevented members from their communities from exercising their rights as American citizens. In other words, while both men in both camps subscribed to anti-communist narratives, their respective realities did not conform to each other's views. While the AMI trustees held steadfast to assimilationist narratives, as historian George Sanchez has shown, Mexi Mexican-Americans in Los Angeles constructed a new American identity that was hybrid, multi-ethnic, and uniquely their own. The AMI trustees were not able to bridge the divide, 
and the meeting led nowhere. The immigrant heritage that the museum espoused also led it to construct a narrative that stressed the contributions of individual immigrants to the United States. It was both based in gender norms of the 1950s, which emphasized the role of male dominion over the private and public spheres, and a class-based idea of individual ingenuity. This narrative was simple and two-dimensional. Immigrant men, they maintained, came, to the old, came from the old world, AKA Europe, penniless and used the American freedom and liberty in order to become successful businessmen and politicians, creating a whole new order. In the eyes of the AMI trustees, the story that best exemplified these characteristics lay in the histories of Western European immigrants. Therefore, even as they maintain, it, they maintain to subscribe to an inclusive narrative, the reality was that they were creating a cultural institution that exalted men like E.I. DuPont, Ulysses S. Grant, and Alexander Hamilton as founders of American liberty, erasing American colonial past and replacing it with a supposed benign nation of freedom-loving immigrants. Sorry, take a little break. Part of that investment in the narrative came from the fact that the AMI trustees were themselves descendants of E.I. DuPont, Ulysses S. Grant, and Alexander Hamilton. These men grew up in a world where male cultural elites like themselves participated in creating the social and political agendas of their, for the nation. For instance, Henry S. DuPont, Pierre's cousin, established the Winterthur Museum, a site dedicated exclusively to Americana. Museums and historic sites like these have been used in the past to educate recent immigrants on the American values and culture, a culture that was heavily Anglo-Saxon and Protestant. It felt natural for them to become civic leaders in the arena of consensus building. For these men, it made sense to enfold their forefathers into the immigrant heritage they wished to espouse. Yet their, their efforts beg a question. Why would you invest time and energy into a consensus building project? The answer lay in the person who originally recommended the idea, William Baldwin. Baldwin was a public relations consultant who conceived of the idea of the museum because he was offended by Joseph McCarthy's red, red baiting and wanted to, quote, develop national unity here at home and understanding and prestige for America throughout the world, end quote. For Baldwin, the AMI was a fight against McCarthyism and for Americanism. The museum was to, quote, dramatize for all the time the story of immigration in the building of America, end quote. In other words, American heritage was a means to a consensus building end. The AMI's interpretive plan became public in 1965 after Adam C. Powell requested the museum's draft. Specifically, he requested the museum explain how it meant to address America's racial diversity. He received a response explaining that narrating the whole story of immigration in 39 permanent exhibits was difficult. 
The memo noted that the AMI would follow a historical timeline that began in the colonial period and ended in 1920. According to the memo, the timeline prevented the narration of Latin American immigration from many of its exhibitions, with the exception of a West Indian immigrant, Alexander Hamilton. Honest to God. Um, the head historian explained that the museum planned to discuss the involuntary migration of African slaves and the contributions of Chinese and Japanese immigrants to the transcontinental railroad and agriculture. In addition, temporary exhibits devoted to individual groups would be installed, showing groups' particular way of life and, above all, their contributions to the melting pot. Congressman Powell made public his objections to the museum's portrayal of African slaves as objects and not as contributors to American society. Powell noted, by emphasizing the contributions made by others and not that of African Americans, the museum was questioning African Americans' ability to ever fully belong to the nation or to receive full citizenship rights, undermining his work as an African-American congressman and that of the civil rights movement. Shortly after Congressman Powell's national condemnation of the AMI hit the newsstands, congressmen, historians, and civic leaders began to request copies of the museum's exhibition script. Polish and Italian communities petitioned their congressmen to have the museum revamp its script to include the contributions of their respective communities. They pushed to have the museum include historians that research their ethnic uh, communities within the historian's advisory committee. All of a sudden, the museum had to defend itself against other ethnic minorities who felt disenfranchised. Many Italian Americans, for instance, began to bombard their congressmen. Congressman Frank Anunzio and Peter Rodino took it upon themselves to aggressively campaign for their community's representation within the museum. They took issue to the kind of contribution that the AMI script highlighted. Anunzio specifically claimed that as the largest ethnic group in the United States, Italian Americans should receive more credit for the development of the United States than just Italian American cuisine. He argued that museums should work toward displaying Italian Americans in a way that, quote, touch people's hearts and not their stomachs, end quote. The museum scrambled to contact Italian American, Polish American, and other white ethnic historians to review their script and find a solution. Their efforts, however, was not fast enough for Congress and the men began bombarding the Park Service, impatiently demanding an explanation. By the beginning of 1968, the museum project was halted with over 24 members of Congress expressing a personal interest in participating in the final approval. The museum staff decided that this problem could only be fixed if they met with and explained their script to Congress directly. By the end of the spring, they organized a meeting with all the Italian-American congressmen where they could outline the content of their plan, discuss the idea, and leave copies of written materials. 
the core issue lay in the fact that the museum was trying to describe a situation that was based on American ideals and not the lived experience of most Americans. Under their narrative, each individual ethnic group could and would drop their ethnic affiliation after being fully assimilated into the American mainstream. However, that's not the reality that most individuals who still affiliated with a specific ethnic organization faced on an everyday basis. Sociologists Nathan Glazer and Daniel Patrick Monaghan published an influential study in 1963, completely disrupting the melting pot theory as a fact. In Beyond the Melting Pot, the sociologist examined various ethno-racial communities in New York and concluded that ethnicity played a major role in the creation of community identity and power. The complaints the museum staff received all pointed to these realities, and yet they were unwilling or able to acknowledge the fact. The museum went back to the drawing board and revamped its exhibitions to include more non-WASP stories. Months before the museum was supposed to open, the historian's committee met to discuss the changes of the final draft. In particular, the committee worked to include the criticisms of social historian Rudolf Vicoli, who believed that the museum endorsed a great man history and was doing a major disservice to immigration history. To cite the career of four individuals to the effect that America was the land of opportunity is to perpetuate the myth of poor immigrant to tycoon, a myth which has been shown to have little basis in fact. Better to cite how many immigrants acquired homesteads or, or became storekeepers. He was also disturbed by the museum's extensive attention towards colonial and 19th century immigration noting that it would be an egregious error since at the time post-1890 immigration was the largest wave. He pondered whether the museum, quote, subscribed to the evaluation expressed in older immigration policies and histories. He forewarned that the script would lead the museum to become a symbol of, quote, increased group bitterness for white ethnics and not, quote, a unifying experience. In Vicoli's opinion, the museum should have taken a more folklorist approach, exhibiting the, the experiences of the masses rather than the few. He suggested the museum collapse their six exhibitions dedicated to war into one, leaving them more space to, quote, provide fuller treatment of the broader spectrum of immigration groups. While some in the committee agreed with Vicoli, all that agreed it was too late. They voted to make changes after the museum opened. President Nixon inaugurated the museum on September 26, 1972. In his speech, he emphasized his belief that the United States was a nation of nations, stating that even as he traveled to other 80 countries, he did not, quote, have to cross the Atlantic or the Pacific to see the world, end quote. He spoke of the various contributions immigrants have made to the United States in the arts, architecture, and music, exalting that they, 
Rockwell believed in hard work. They didn't come here for a handout, end quote. In other words, Nixon pivoted these mythological immigrants as responsible citizens who did not need welfare programs to elevate themselves into the middle class. Like the museum's trustees, he clung to the notion that the museum was a tool for psychological warfare against communism. Despite Nixon's dedication, the museum did not receive good reviews. To try and understand why it was failing, the AMI asked several prominent Americans to come and evaluate the site. The harshest critique came from Charles Guggenheim, who, treated this, who repeated the same criticisms that Powell had made in 1965. First of all, no museum, no presentation of this sort can be all-encompassing, but this museum tried. And out of that decision came the exhibit's biggest problem. I specifically was disappointed in the sections that treated blacks and Japanese and the Jews. I'm not saying this because they represented minorities, but because the work done on these groups is not well conceived and executed, a missed opportunity. Therefore, it was essentially the AMI's failure uh, to, uh, sorry, it was AMI's failure to acknowledge new understandings of immigration, ethnicity, and race that became the museum's ultimate demise. A major complication for the AMI was the inclusion of Ellis Island into the Park Service system. When the General Service Administration or GSA, first came to hold Ellis Island, the American public began to speculate how to best use it for the public good. Several projects were proposed, including an idea by New Jersey Senator James Murray, who wanted to develop an immigration museum on the site. The idea scared the AMI, as it came to complete, conf it conflicted with their project. They lobbied the Park Service to end the situation. Further complicating the matter was the public battle that began to ensue between the states of New Jersey and New York. Each state argued that the, the island fell under their jurisdiction and that only it had the ability to use the land after the federal government. Without a clear plan, the GSA placed an ad in national newspapers touting it as, quote, one of the most famous landmarks in the world, exclaiming that the island is the perfect location and facility for, quote, oil storage, import and export processing, manufacturing, etc. The public was outraged. As a famous landmark, many had begun to warm to Senator Murray's idea. One American even stated that, quote, to millions and millions of Americans, Ellis Island was the 19th and 20th century counterpart to Plymouth Rock. President Eisenhower stopped the sale, but the property remained in limbo. In December of 1960, Edward Corsi, who was a past commissioner of Ellis Island and an AMI trustee, along with Oscar Hanlon, a historian for AMI's historian, com, Historians Committee, and several others wrote an open letter in the New York Times placing their weight behind Ellis Island. 
And they supplicated the Park Service spend their resources in an actual immigration site. The New York Times letter publicly exposed one of the AMI's vulnerabilities. In the letter, the authors expressed Ellis Island's historical value as a, quote, gateway to a new life of liberty and opportunity for millions of Americans. The statement implied that Ellis Island was the rightful site for an immigration museum and not the Statue of Liberty. They moved the rhetoric that had been used to elevate the, uh, elevate the AMI and placed it on Ellis Island, calling the island a symbol of, quote, the wielding of many nationalities, races, and religions into one nation. They further proposed that the AMI be moved to Ellis Island as a more appropriate site. This letter clearly expressed what many had been hinting. The AMI rejected the notion and remained wedded to the Statue of Liberty and the symbolism it held as a beacon of hope for millions of immigrants. Meanwhile, the issue of Ellis Island persisted. Congress held hearings in 1962 and 63 to establish what the government should do with Ellis Island. The AMI placed pressure on the Park Service to publicly resist the preservation of Ellis Island. The Park Service acquiesced, and during a hearing, the associate director placed his weight behind the AMI. The Statue of Liberty National Monument was established as a symbol of freedom to immigrants from all parts of the world. The American Museum of Immigration, which is now about 75% complete, will present the achievements and contributions to all national groups in the making of one of the United States. When, compared, when completed, it will be administered by the Park Service. We believe that there is a representation we believe that there is represented in the Statue of Liberty and the American Museum of Immigration adequate commemoration of immigration by the United States. Despite the Park Service's best efforts, public pressure remained to transform Ellis Island into a national landmark. At the same time, the battle between New Jersey and New York kept going. Uh, as they both fought over the jurisdiction of the island and the money that would come along with it. To put all issues at rest, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed a proclamation in 1965 making Ellis Island part of the Statue of Liberty National Monument. Along with this proclamation, President Johnson pled Congress to work to enact an immigration reform bill aimed at abolishing discriminatory national quotas adopted in 1924 and then replicated again in 1952. While the AMI blamed the acquisition of Ellis Island for its poor reviews, outsiders could see that the trustees were the largest liability. These men had not foreseen the civil rights transformation of American nationalism. The civil rights movement forged a new nationalism that Matthew Fry Jacobson calls hyphenated nationalism. Under this new definition of national belonging, white Americans began to reflect on their own roots and adopted much of the same language that African Americans had to describe themselves and their heritage. The AMI came about as a means of celebrating the United States as a nation of immigrants 
a message that represented the United States as a united fright front against the communist threat and a universal body beyond racial discourse of the civil rights movement. However, it did not give white ethnics the space to discuss their families' lived experiences. For many who participated in this ethnic revivalism, Ellis Island became their landmark. Park Service officials felt uncomfortable operating two sites which depicted the same story. Uh, and they felt it was their job to figure out a way to interpret American immigration history while the AMI reminded them it was their job and not Ellis Island. With little recourse, the Park Service decided to turn the island into a memorial park. Uh, the Park Service contacted architect Philip Johnson to redesign Ellis Island as a memorial park for the American public. By the end of 1965, Johnson had a plan. On the steps of the Federal Hall in New York City, he revealed that he would leave the Ellis Island Immigration Station as it was, not preserving it, ensuring that it remained, quote, the historic ruins of New York's immigrant past. Around the station, he would install a wall with the names of the 16 million people who immigrated through the station. To ensure the memorial sentiments tied to those of the AMI, the Park Service officials asked that one building be retrofitted to show a documentary about the depot. Another building would underscore the processing of the new immigrants passing through Ellis Island. While the Park Service adored the idea, the American public did not. The press editorialized it, calling it ugly, Romanticism run riot and a, monstro um, sorry, a monstrosity and a gas tank. So if you could see that right over there, right? The New York Times made a point to critique the wall of 16 million, reminding readers the wall was, quote, walls are built to exclude as Berlin's wall of shame, while Ellis Island was America's gateway. For the American mainstream, and specifically white ethnics, the Johnson plan did not ascribe to their notions of Ellis Island. This place was, as they understood it, a mere repository of the past, but rather a golden door for European immigrants. They saw Ellis Island as a monument that embodied their social history and countered AMI's great man history. Therefore, Americans expected the Memorial Park to encapsulate the trials and tribulations of European immigrants while still acknowledging their resilience. The imaginings went against Johnson's attempt to somberly depict the island's immigrant past. The idea led nowhere and the Park Service remained without an actual action plan. Dr. Peter Sammartino a child of Italian immigrants and founder of the Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey, took a helicopter ride over New York Harbor in 1974. And he looked down and saw a weathered Ellis Island. His parents had entered the country through this immigration station at the turn of the 20th century, and he credited his success to his Italian immigrant roots. San Martino contacted the Park Service to find out how he could revitalize the monument. He decided that he wanted to have a tour of the station 
and see what his parents witnessed when they entered the United States. San Martino was outraged by much of the Park Service in action and announced his intention to start the Ellis Island Restoration Committee. For San Martino, Ellis Island was the genesis of American immigration. Similar to the story of the pilgrims who first landed on Plymouth Rock, San Martino saw Ellis Island as a site where millions of European immigrants entered the American consciousness. Yet he understood that his family did not have to colonize and conquer to the, the American landscape. Their path to American mainstream did not follow the same road. As African Americans in the South and Chicanos in the West fought for access to a better education and a revision of American history textbooks, many white ethnics worked to have their histories incorporated into the normative curriculum. Throughout the 1970s, history textbooks were revised to include the experiences of European ethnic groups. This push established that the country as this push established that the country was a multicultural space meant that other traditions and narratives had to be reworked to fit into this new discourse. By the end of the decade, history textbooks came to metamorphose uh, metamorphosized the narratives of Plymouth Rock and Jamestown. As, Fry, as Matthew Fry Jacobson notes, American colonists began to be referred as the thematic context of Ellis Island, so they were America's first immigrants, and the American history in general was devoted and divorced from the settler history. Multiculturalism became the new term that was used to define their nationalistic tendencies. This distinct form of nationalism rejected the melting pot theory and policies of assimilation, while it also celebrated Americans' ethnic and racial diversity. For San Martino, multiculturalism allowed him to memorialize Ellis Island as a space that initiated immigrants' journey to the American dream and that marked them as different sorry, I keep losing my space, different from the mainstream Americans. He understood that his desire to open Ellis Island had awakened thanks to the civil rights movement, but he also acknowledged that his family's ability to partake in the American dream was a right that few African Americans actually had access to. He saw his familial history as a verification of that dream and believed that Ellis Island could showcase their trajectory for Americans of all creeds and color. Yet, just as the rest of white ethnic public combed through genealogical books to discover their origins, San Martino looked to Ellis Island to demonstrate the tensions between the old Europe of his ancestors and the new American life that had become the reality for millions of their descendants. In other words, he wanted to ground immigration heritage in the history of the 20th century wave of immigration that framed Ellis Island as a sacred space for all. To do this work, San Martino turned to Rudolf Vicoli, the most vocal opponent of the AMI. Vicoli's support legitimized San Martino as a person grounded in the new theories of education and history. Both men understood the evolution of nationalism now included the diverse experiences of immigrants who had struggled to make a world of their own. 
For them, the AMI was grounded in the idealism of democracy and civic unity, which emphasized the assimilation of immigrants into a larger mainstream. San Martino saw Ellis Island in different terms. He envisioned his site as a capsule of history that was tied to the hardships of his family. He understood that Amer Americans needed to experience firsthand an immigrant past that included both the triumphs and the hardships of the immigrant experience. His goal was to demonstrate that history of immigration to the United States was not limited to abstract terminology of patriotism and heroism. Rather, he wanted to show the process of immigration itself from the point of view of the immigrants. The Ellis Island Restore Restoration Committee views the sentiments of the country's 200th anniversary, right, the bicentennial, to garner support for San Martino's multicultural project. He encapsulated the American ideals of civic duty and patriotism as part of a larger American landscape that required the inclusion of all Americans. While Ellis Island Committee saw the importance of the AMI, they acknowledged that the museum itself was a creation of the WASP elite. The AMI Board of Trustees included men like Alexander Hamilton, Pierre S. DuPont III, and Ulysses S. Grant III. These men were not part of the history that white ethnic communities were claiming. Furthermore, even as the AMI claimed to discuss the history of those that entered the United States through Ellis Island, the museum did little to recognize and include the trials and tribulations faced by their ancestors. Restoring and opening Ellis Island to the public seemed like the most obvious solution. Many agreed that the, with the restoration of the landmark, interpretation of its significance would follow. By May of 1976, the Park Service had cleaned up most of the island, begun rehab of the main reception hall, and posted 24-hour guards. The island opened in a ceremony that included most federal representatives from New York and New Jersey. The Park Service regional director gave a speech noting that it was particularly fitting that the island opened during the country's bicentennial celebrations. He believed that Americans could personally identify with their heritage through the vistas of this landmark. For San Martino and other white ethnics, the opening of Ellis Island had allowed them to temper the idealism of the AMI, even as the site's rehab became a rallying point for national unity. In 1980, two men attempted to climb the outside part of the Statue of Liberty. Part, on their way up, park rangers found them and reported them to the police. After the incident, staff members began to assess if the climbers had done any damage, and instead they found a dilapidated structure. The Park Service superintendent began to search for a structure report and realized that there wasn't any. He was astonished that this had happened. At the same time, Robert Grace, an ex-Dark Up broker, began to pester President Ronald Reagan on the statue's restoration needs. The White House put him in contact with the Park Service, who then informed him that they had the intention of celebrating the statue's 100-year anniversary. 
By 1981, the Park Service officials met with the White House to find an interconnected way to bring all of the people who were interested in restoring both the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. These meetings resulted in the creation of a public-private partnership between the Park Service and the various entities interested. On May 17, 1982, President Reagan announced from the White House East Room that the Park Service would have a private fundraising partner in order to restore both sites. The partner was incorporated as the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation, here to refer to as the foundation. And President Reagan appointed Lee Iacocca as its chairman. Reagan chose Lee Iacocca for several reasons. First, Iacocca's successful career in Chrysler exposed him to prominent leaders and business people who could donate millions of dollars to the preservation efforts. In Iacocca, um, sorry, in Iacocca, Reagan was assured that the foundation would keep its promise of funding all, of finding all of its funds through private matters. Second, as a Reagan supporter, Iacocca held on to similar polit a political philosophy. He believed that families, that his family had the upward mobility as a result of individual ingenuity and integrity and not big government. Last, even though Iacocca held on to the rhetoric of individual contribution, as a child of Italian immigrants, he also understood firsthand the importance of both sites to white ethnic populations and to the larger immigrant landscape. By 1983, the Park Service published its final historic and, uh, and structural report, outlining Ellis Island's structural damage, various preservation efforts, and interpretive prospects. They found that even though people had cited 16 million as the number of immigrants that passed through Ellis Island, the INS records showed that the federal government only processed, I'll just say 14 million, uh, during the use of its immigration station site as an immigration station between 1892 and 1924. Uh, the first two years weren't recorded, so we don't know exactly how many went through there. Uh, these findings prove that the entire narrative of Ellis Island needed to be scrutinized and the foundation assembled a panel of immigrant scholars and at the head of the realm, helm was Rudolf Akoli. From the onset, this historian's committee worked in collaboration with the Park Service to create exhibitions for Ellis Island that were both historically accurate and intellectually stimulating. The committee moved to portray the immigration history from the point of, point of view of the masses, a stark difference to the AMI. Between 1983 and 1990, the Historians Committee met several times with the Park Service staff to help produce a sound exhibition script. During one of the first meetings, the Park Service asked, how they should handle these two different kinds of immigration museums. Members of the com committee quickly noted that their opponents, their opposition to the AMI and suggested that the museum close or at least be moved out of the Statue of Liberty. The Park Service heeded the historian's advice and began to meet with the AMI. 
and the foundation to find a plan that worked for everyone. These meetings, however, quickly fell apart when the AMI heard about a possible proposal to move them out of the museum. They argued that the only portion of the immigration story that should actually exist in Ellis Island was the experience of immigrants while in Ellis Island. The staff met with historians committee arguing that, quote, many ethnic, social, economic, and cultural backgrounds have been able to work together under a mantle of freedom symbolized by the Statue of Liberty, end quote. The historians were not swayed pointing out that most European immigrants had actually come to the United States through Ellis Island and that their immigration inspection lay in the halls of Ellis Island. While the AMI worked to remain at the base of the Statue of Liberty, Lee Iacocca worked to fundraise over $350 million to renovate both places. By 1986, Iacocca had convinced several corporations to become sponsors of the restoration, including Coca-Cola, US Today, Nestle, and Oscar Mayer. I can give you all the rest of them later. Um, but he granted them exclusive rights to advertise uh, during the Liberty Weekend celebrations. Iacocca's connections to mass media and consumer business, therefore, allowed him to reach his fundraising goals. On July 3rd, 1986, the Park Service unveiled the newly restored Statue of Liberty. The unveiling garnered national and international attention, and the advertisements became a contentious point. Critics felt that the advertisements cheapened the centennial and further cemented American corporate greed. For others, like Iacocca, the sponsorships were living proof that white European individuals were major uh, contributors to the American economy and international free markets. In many ways, Lee Iacocca realized what the AMI had attempted to do 30 years earlier. With Liberty a weekend behind them, the Park Service then kicked preservation efforts into high gear for Ellis Island. They hired a design firm which tapped Nathan Glazer, co-author of the Beyond the Melting Pot, to work as the firm's history consultant. Glazer's participation on the project, while minimal, pointed to the preservationist insistence that Ellis Island be interpreted as a multicultural immigration site. By the end of 1989, the museum script was finished and the Park Service worked with the foundation to on the last bit of the Ellis Island Museum uh, main building restorations. In the meantime, the Park Service began to advertise its grand opening of the Ellis Island Museum and the museum's efforts to capture the experience of immigrants. When the AMI director heard about this and the efforts in a New York magazine, he wrote a very heated letter to the AMI trustees threatening public, a public fight with the Park Service. He also respond, responded to the magazine editor stating that the article was slanderous. He complained that many of the AMI problems were actually the Park Service's fault. He cited a specific incident to serve as an example. 
If the reporter had spoken to us, she would have learned that that scandal of placing a Torah upside down in the Seed of Abraham exhibit was a result of carelessness by the National Park Service, which is ultimately responsible for the exhibitions at Ellis Island. Our trustees discovered the gaffe and had it corrected when, it op when the museum opened 20 years ago. It, it is correct that the AMI needs updating. Updated exhibits were promised in an agreement with the trustees and signed by the Park Service and the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation. In it, the Park Service and the Foundation pledged $3.5 million to the AMI. The agreement also called for a linkage between the AMI story of the building and development of America and Ellis Island experience. We await the funds. The director's tantrum, however, did little for his cause. The Ellis Island Museum opened on September 9, 1990, marking the 100th anniversary of the island's immigration station, and the Park Service closed the AMI. Even though the foundation expected a massive fanfare for the reopening of the Statue of Liberty in 1986, they were not anticipating the American public response to the new Ellis Island Museum. The most successful portion of the Ellis Island Museum was Lee Iacocca's resurrection of Philip Johnson's Wall of 16 Million. Iacocca's version, however, had a twist. For $100, a visitor could put their name or the name of their ancestors on the wall, regardless of whether they had actually passed through Ellis Island. <laughs> This capitalist venture continued to raise funds for the foundation even after the Ellis Island Museum opened. Unlike most other national ventures to showcase immigration and the immigrant experience, Ellis Island tried to address immigration and ethnic history through the narrow focus of the actual site. From through America's gates in the registry room to the exhibition titled Peak Immigration Years, the museum attempted to restrain itself to the experiences of actual Ellis Island immigrants. This focus meant that the interpretive staff worked extensively in unearthing Ellis Island's immigration records if they wanted to discuss the experiences of non-Europeans. The museum struck a balance between distinguishing the immigrants' opportunities and hardships. Therefore, in addressing Ellis Island as a federal institution, it moved beyond the site's use as an immigration station, discussing its use and redevelopment as a deportation center post-1924. This exhibition, in particular, moved away from the idea that the United States was a beacon of hope and that, in fact, accepted all of the huddled masses. This exhibition also chronicled the history of the island itself before it actually became a st immigration station. For the museum staff, it was important to discuss Native Americans not as crossers of the Bering Strait, but as part of the American polyglot society. The museum also created a temporary exhibition space allowing most immigration and ethnic museums throughout the country to host their exhibition and discuss immigration through communities' perspectives. Together with the Statue of Liberty, the Ellis Island Museum became one of the most visited historic sites in the New York slash New Jersey area.
Last year, the Ellis Island Museum was renamed the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration. According to Stephen Briganti, president and CEO of the foundation, quote, if we didn't talk about the people who have come since Ellis Island, we wouldn't be relevant to new Americans. Our board and the Park Service decided, well, we better fix that, end quote. In other words, the name reflected the museum's new mission, to tell the history of immigration beyond Ellis Island. As we have seen, their impetus to memorialize all of the United States immigrant past is one in one site is not new, but rather part of a larger and longer battle over the meaning of the United States. As one park ranger once told me, to mention colonial migration, to mention immigration in the 19th century before the opening of Ellis Island, to deal with modern day immigration, that in a sense is the ghost of the AMI. The question over how to remember the immigrant experience appears to be ongoing, yet the notion that the United States is a nation of immigrants is now seen as a collective truth. Maybe the AMI succeeded. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.